for another episode of the Third Way Podcast, where we talk about every week exploring the tension of following Jesus in a world that really just wants black and white, uh, cut and dry answers. We believe that there's nuance in this. And last week we kicked off part one of a conversation with Wade Mullen about impression management and organizations in a time of crisis. Um, And this was such a fun interview and it was quite lengthy. So this is part two. And we hope that you've been blessed through even part one. And and we ask that if you uh, have been blessed, if you have been encouraged, that you would share this with somebody and have a conversation with them about this. Um, If you do have questions, you can reach out to us on our Instagram page at Third Way. Uh, You can follow us there. Um, And uh, we just really look forward to connecting with you in any way that we can. Uh, So thank you so much for listening. Let's dive in to part two with Wade Mullen. What do you, you said something earlier that was pretty frightening about um, the narcissistic leader. Uh, I think you said most, if not all, of the large organizations or churches were started around that, that narcissistic kind of uh, keystone, you said. And we're witnessing many of these crumble right now. Um, and as more people are getting bolder and becoming more empowered, and hopefully that's what this platform is doing as well is giving people courage to come forward and step into the light and expose some light. Um, What do you think, how would you describe the the toll that this has had on the church over these years? Because these organizations have been around for decades. Hmm. It's, this isn't a new thing. We're just, it's now coming to the light, as you already said. What do you think that's done to the church in the West over these decades of, 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 of followers of Jesus being built in that culture without even knowing it? Like, we wouldn't have known this is what the, the pastors that I would have listened to in my teens, I would have never known this was the majority of them. I mean, we've, we've referenced Mars Hill. I used to love listening to Driscoll's sermons, and his, his doctrine book was, was, in, was in my hands most of the time when I was trying to learn stuff. Um, and you don't want to throw out all of this stuff that he taught, saying he's a complete heretic because he's a failed human. Um, but what would you say uh, the toll is on the church? I think these organizations have all served as models for countless other organizations. Mm. And so Mm -hmm. they see what they perceive to be success. They're big. They have a lot of money. They have a lot of influence. And so other organizations want to become like them. And so they model themselves after that. Mm -hmm. And so, so it becomes replicated. Yeah. It's dangerous. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. So you have all of these organizations then that are built around a keystone. Then you have people, plenty of people who are out there who say, you know, I want to be that person. Yeah. I want to be on the stage. I want to be in the spotlight. I want to have crowds applauding me. I want to have that kind of power. We call it a person of influence now. That's kind of oh, the, okay. yeah, the buzzword that young people oh, want to be an influencer. Oh, an influencer. Uh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. yes. Right. Yeah. All right, so, but that might all come from a very dark place. And so we then create structures that uh, serve as magnets for those individuals. And, and so it's, it's, it's having that kind of impact. Mm-hmm. And I see that in my role as a director of MDiv program where mm-hmm. I'm interviewing 
prospective students, students who have applied, and asking the question, why do you, why do you want to do this? Mm-hmm. And hearing at times some, some scary answers. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, in a position to be able to say, you know, this isn't going to be a good fit for you, or no, you're, you're being denied acceptance. But there are people out there uh, that are looking for ministry positions to satisfy their own desire mm-hmm. f- to be in power over people. Yeah. And so I think we were, we've created structures um, yeah. where we've said that this is all, this is, this is going to be most effective if we can find a keystone, if we can find that influencer, if we can find that charismatic person mm-hmm. um, who can draw crowds the warm, winsome, charismatic, magnetic, yes, attractive, yeah, yeah, with mm-hmm. just the right number of tattoos. <laughs> right. Oh, is that what's happening <laughs> here, John? Right. So it's becoming like more is, specific. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of counseling. Carrie has a full sleeve for those here. of you yeah. who don't know. Yeah, yeah. totally. Um, you, what's interesting <laughs> is that's some misguided ambition yeah. that mm-hmm. you're getting from the individuals, from the leaders that, I mean, we just don't really call out or even identify. Mm. And in some ways, I think these organizations begin to look for because yeah. you want, yeah. yeah, you want that misguided ambition to hopefully fulfill some benchmark of success that we have created that mm-hmm. is not necessarily biblical or a model for yeah. what success in the church is supposed to look like, we've, but this has been a byproduct. sculpted that new leader totally. that is now the young leader of the church. It's been sculpted from that, that model. Yeah. That and, was successful by somebody's standards yeah. at some point recently. And even as you were saying, you know, these, the, these structures and these systems, most churches, especially the ones that I've been a part of, they're not the big guys, you know, they're not the 30,000, but they're that tier underneath that, that is learning everything they possibly can from the big guys. At the they're, conferences. At the conferences, mm-hmm. yeah. You think about all of the ones, I, Catalyst, Thrive, um, I think those are a few that I've been to, Orange. Uh, you want to learn these systems from the people who have seen success, metrics, the numbers, this success. air quote success. <laughs> And that's where, but then you think, if you stop and you think about it from this conversation, you think that narcissistic keystone leader that built all of this, we're mimicking everything that he did in to, we're bringing that into our church. We might not have that leader that's leading us astray, but we're still following that leader in this way. And we're building our church the same way that he did. Do we need to question these systems? What do we do? with this i mean some of not all these systems are bad i mean retaining information of people so that we can stay connected with our congregation as it grows it's not necessarily a bad thing it can be used poorly um i don't know are there any systems you can think of that uh, you've seen as unhealthy or some that we need to be rethinking as we dig up these this path the roots of some of the stuff yeah well i I think generally speaking the the sole pastor senior pastor model is unhealthy mm. now you might have a community of people where let's just live there for a second <laughs> we just talked about this for a little bit and yeah. i did not anticipate it coming up but i yeah yeah <laughs> so it's it's unhealthy uh, not just for that church or for that community but it's unhealthy for that person who's in that role mm-hmm. because that person is so often um brought in uh with 
unreasonable expectations and is given so much um, responsibility and power and then faces the pressure and it's a growing pressure mm-hmm. and that person over time becomes increasingly isolated and begins to split under that pressure and so there's many yeah. solo pastors senior pastors who are really struggling and they're 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 struggling on the inside mm-hmm. and they're in a role that I believe they were never necessarily designed to occupy. Now, there's people who say, well, there's, you know, we provide support through the elders or through, well, that that can happen, but let's rethink the structure to begin with. And and so, yeah, we create these, these structures um, often. Mm-hmm. It, it's a structure in which there's a person at the very top that everything is built around. And that's not good for that person. Mm-hmm. But then that person who perhaps is is dangerous to people f- to begin with or becomes dangerous over time, becomes mm-hmm. unhealthy yeah. over time, is then, be- because they have so much influence and so much power, that's going to have a neg- negative impact on the people who are under that power. And so it's not only impacting the person who's who's occupying that role but it's also shaping and influencing all of the people who are within that system Mm -hmm. and so we take a huge risk i feel by setting up these kind of structures Mm -hmm. and it's such a part of our tradition not necessarily theologically sound not necessarily kingdom-minded approach to leadership or hierarchy but it's such a tradition that we have established um, that's not serving us well and doesn't, it, it fails to represent the fullness of the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. Even like yes. if we were to just look at the scriptures to say, what should our church leadership models look like? Yeah. I don't know that this is what any of us would interpret from that, but yeah. at some point it met some benchmark of what we had deemed success mm-hmm. and now is heavily influencing how we continue to lead our churches. Yeah. The coaching organization I do work with recently did research on this to mm. actually look at shared leadership models and how much more effective they are because it forces them to be mission-minded because they're mm. not operating within agreement of what per- one person thinks, but they're operating in the shared agreement of what the advancement of the gospel and, and establishing God's kingdom looks like. And so the humility that that requires and the gifts differing of the different strengths that people bring, just it, it breeds such a sense of synergy and dependence even on God to do you know the work and bring, yeah. be, bring headship to that team. Um, it's very few and far between, but it's a stunning picture of what leadership. It's, it's a lot harder like. because you have to oh, then fine. have double the meetings, if not more. It's a lot easier to be like, just do what I said. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and, yeah. You yeah. Know, it's really efficient. In uh, the yeah, I remember but... it was probably like four or five years ago. I was sitting in a in a staff meeting and in the church that I was at invited uh, who was once the lead pastor of a church out in the Sacramento area, and his church had just decided to go to a three lead pastor model mm. where they, they elevate and each one of the three had a different kind of responsibility of the three. One was primarily teaching, one was primarily staff and, and vision. And I can't remember what the other one was, maybe um, more missions minded and stuff. And I remember sitting in the meeting and the pastor, when my pastor, when that pastor mentioned that's where they were going, 
laughed in his face and said, let me know in six months how that worked out for you. And it was like, what? and here I am the like, ego that has to I get know. shot out of the room to yes. make something like that work. I yeah. mean, it's, and he did, he said, it's, it's been, well, actually I loved his answer cause he was very humble. He goes, I will. It's been a year now and it's working great. <laughs> and, but he was, he wasn't rude about it. He just said, yeah, this is, it's very hard. It's extremely yeah. hard. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, an organization out in Washington right now that I'm super closely connected with and taught there a couple of weeks ago and that this is their model and the way that God has anointed what they're doing in the Portland area, which is, mm. you know, very post-Christian, mm. the influence that they're gaining in the community and with community leaders. And it's some of the sharpest, brightest leaders that I have met in the last probably decade in ministry and they're showing up and setting aside even their personal aspirations and ambitions for what the church was they wanted, you know, and it's just just beautiful to see we're going to talk to them on the podcast about oh, that's how this is working and but a stunning picture yeah. of leadership that's good i think people need to hear you know some more examples of where this yeah. is working well yeah. not just deconstruction let's also get together and see how little path. Thing, yeah, let's, yes. let's build the path again yeah what are these other yes. options yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. totally mm-hmm. but you are up against uh, the person who laughs in the face of that idea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they've um, already got the church that's successful and thousands of people and they're looking at their own right. systems. Oh yeah, they're saying, well, this is this is what is effective. Yeah. What you're proposing isn't, but their definition of effective and success is off. Totally. You know, just to give a, like a practical example, you know, in many of these conferences and, you know, in seminary courses, you learn about how to affect change, how to lead change. But, but most of those models of change are based on a, a thinking about power and leadership that says your job is to get people on board. Mm. And they're just customers. They're just objects. And so they even use the, not so much the language, but the same framework that Goffman used to describe different categories of people within a total, total institution. Mm-hmm. They say in so many days, you know, you need to, get people um, into these different categories, you know, mm-hmm. and by this point, we want everyone to be converts. Mm-hmm. And along the way, there's going to be some who leave, and that's okay. There's going to be some who resist, and you've got to identify them and work with them. There's going to be some who just comply. But the goal is to, if you're going to lead change, is to turn everybody into a convert. Mm-hmm. Well, what if you're wrong? You know, what if your vision is off? What if but yeah. it's all driven by as often a single person? And if that conversion or assimilation is, okay, we want people to give and serve, would any of us actually say one hour a week of giving or serving or hearing some yeah. mildly inspiring, hope-filled talk is enough to transform someone into the likeness of Jesus? Totally. Like, I don't think any of us would say these key things that were measuring success by that I have decided as the key leader of this Mm. organization are the most important that you probably got from somebody else. Oh, somebody that's much more (laughs) successful than me, you know? And so we're going to step back. I I just don't know that any of us would objectively even agree that that leads to transformation, but we have adapted some of these values and said, yeah, they're important. And I've sat in those meetings of frustration of why is it, why is our church just consumer? Why is there, but no, we breed people but to do But we're breeding that. it. You know, we're creating a culture where everything that happens is on our terms. It's at our location. You have to come here to our to our place for the one hour a week when mm-hmm. it's, you know, we're not coming to them and meeting people where they are. We're just creating this consumer. We're just giving you content 
and then hoping that you do something with it. Totally. This is a part of my deconstruction thinking about the church that I'll just share. And then I do have a a follow up question in here, but, um, I was just talking to a creative director at Willow about this precise thing, just the idea that over time, these systems perpetuate one another. So we got into a conversation about the Bible project, these videos mm-hmm. that give you a context around, you know, different books of the Bible and help with understanding and point to Jesus. And uh, we were talking about sort of the biblical illiteracy in churches, you know, when it comes to discipleship and even how much I've learned from watching these videos about the scriptures. And essentially like, yeah, but if, if we were actually equipping and imparting knowledge to our people, they would be less dependent on those of us that stand on a stage with a microphone and deliver a message. And that's scary for a leader. Totally. So, I mean, it's somebody to laugh in the face of another leader who's looking at a a shared leadership model Mm. because that's threatening something in them. Like that, that's the reality, but how much of what we're building in our systems and structures in the church are to perpetuate some of the platform building and, you know, dependence on a person or on a personality yeah. Um, the smarter your congregants become, the better your talks have to be. You know, if you're feeding or the better them, content you can get online, the better you better be preaching. Exactly. I, I mean, yes. How much time do we spend investing in mm-hmm. that when the reality is that the goal? Like, if I share with you the book that I read to form most of my talk on a Sunday morning, you're going to then go read that book and find out. Oh, he's not that smart. He just got it from somebody. <laughs> you know, that's a fear from people and. And yeah, I, it's, it's an insecurity for sure in that leadership in that we're trying to control what people think of us. We want them to like us. We want them to think we're smart. We want them to think that we're great dynamic leaders. And we're really just afraid that people are, we're going to be exposed as not that great. Yes, yes. And that's the imposter syndrome. Mm. Um, mm. You know, somebody who perhaps is lead, leading a, any kind of church and... They know that people perhaps are asking for higher quality teaching or more um, material from God's word, and you know. But the person who's in that position of providing that teaching uh, might know that they're not qualified to do that. Mm-hmm. They don't have the training, or they haven't been in the word themselves, and so they have nothing to offer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah. they're threatened by requests to offer more. Mm-hmm. So then they become an imposter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I have a question, and we might not talk about it. Um, I was wondering, what the social media today being so prominent is where we spend all of our time now. It's most of us where we live our lives. Are you seeing any kind of um, patterns forming in young people? Are you thinking through that at all, like at churches, I mean, the way that we live on social media now, the way that we uh, market ourselves, the way that we push our images on that Facebook. Project, exactly. That, that are cultivated. Well, you think and... about when we were young on these social media accounts, we do not look the same that we do on Instagram as we do in real life. We're creating these filters. And now we're starting to do the same thing with our churches in these pictures and the things that we decide to post. It's very clean pictures that we can decide to take. It's you know, the best stuff that we can put out there. We're not, if it's not a big enough number, it's not a stat that's going to make it, you know, well, we only had one person get saved this weekend, but we had like 50 kids in our like summer camp thing. So we'll announce that. But you know, the one person who got saved, we don't need to celebrate that. Mm-hmm. That's kind of lame, mm-hmm. you know? So this is like, 
all the ways that we do impression management. Well, I'm just wondering if we're seeing that could be something more dangerous. Is that something that could grow? Because yeah. it's uh, absolutely so. There's we've only gone to like two or three tactics of impression <laughs> management, yeah. but another big tactic uh, is what's called self promotion. Mm-hmm. Or an do you individual- say soft promotion or self promotion? Self promotion. Self promotion. Okay. Um, or when an organization self promotion use- is another tactic. Yeah. Well, we're <laughs> going to get there, John. Hold on. <laughs> or when an organization uses it's called organizational promotion. Mm-hmm. And so they, the person knows that if you want to increase the likelihood that somebody is going to give you what you want them to give you, whether it's their affirmation or their money, their support, is to promote your positive qualities mm-hmm. or to promote your success. Because then that person might be drawn to that mm-hmm. or see you as qualified. And so we engage in a lot of self-promotion mm-hmm. and churches they engage in a lot of organizational promotion. And social media gives them just another platform from which they can do that. And and so I do think that that, that is a danger. And it gives us as individuals another platform where we can... Um, be given a megaphone from which we can mm-hmm. shape people's impressions of us and only show them uh, what we want them to see, hoping that what they see will define uh, their view of us. Mm-hmm. So I think there is a danger in in, in using social media um, in those in those ways. Mm-hmm. Or it's not so much you know. I think we would expect that somebody who's gonna um, perform any kind of public work is going to put their best effort into that, and we know that that's going to shape people's view of view of us. Mm-hmm. But if what you're doing is simply designed to win people's favor and not actually speak truth or be a blessing to people, if it's not if it's just about you and not about the other person, then that's a that that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, give us some more of the image impression management tactics that organizations use in a time of crisis. And I think where we left that part of the conversation was at the moment that they're going to continue to choose what's the highest value right now in these decisions, right? That's when Mm -hmm. they continue to publicly deploy some of those tactics. Right, right. So I think um, an organization uh, that is seeking to grow itself using deceptive means will use a lot of these very these different types of charms call them and so those charms will still be used even after a crisis hits Mm -hmm. because they want to maintain the engagement of their followers and retain their trust and so there's a bunch of other charms so for example um over helping is one kind of charm where somebody offers another person help in ways that perhaps are unnecessary, mm-hmm. um, but they know that that person might appreciate that help or might become dependent upon that help. So I gave you a job, or I helped you buy that car, mm-hmm. or you would not have experienced the success that you've experienced if it wasn't for my coaching. Mm-hmm. And so that person is helping the other person, not as a way of benefiting that person, but as a way of entrapping that person, mm. making that person dependent or causing, making sure that that person sees you as the reason for their success. 
And is that because then it leaves the person in power with something to be owed to them? Like there's a sense of reciprocity with that. Like I'm going to continue to help you or overhelp you. And now you're going to know where, where that came from, or you're going to owe me one. I've got chips in the bank now. Or like, is there something to that? Oh yeah. So it can be used in a seductive way, you know, like, Hey, why don't you start meeting with me because I can help you. Um, I can help you become uh, what you want to become. Mm. And so that can be used to isolate somebody. So abusers use that offer to help to isolate a, a victim. Mm -hmm. uh, but it can also be used to place someone in, in their debt. So mm. to mm -hmm. continually help in ways that are beyond necessary and, and then hold that over the person later. Mm -hmm. And so it's almost like you're, you're uh, building a pile of debt. Mm -hmm. And when the time comes, you can collect and say, okay, you, I need you to do this for me. And the person might say, I'm not comfortable doing that. Or that's asking me to cross a line that I'm not willing to cross. And the abusive person will say, are you not grateful for all that I've done for you? Um, I've done this, I've done. And so now there, it, it exposes the reason for all of that help. Mm. And so, yeah, there is something behind that. It is intentional. So that overhelping is a kind of charm. Um, another one that's similar to that is doing favors, um, either asking the other person to do favors or doing favors for that person. Um, so gift gifts would fall under that. So purchasing somebody gifts. And so all of that is grooming behavior. So that, that that's a common one. And you're buying someone's favor basically and all of these different ingratiating tactics are are being used to gain trust mm -hmm. and then once that trust is gained the abuser is going to exploit that mm -hmm. and that's when boundaries start being crossed and that's when the abuser perhaps is able to isolate the person because the person has um, started to trust and beginning to see that this person actually does care about me, likes me. So when they ask me to um, meet them in a hotel room or, um, you know, go go on this trip together, you know, I I don't suspect that anything bad will come of that. This person cares about what we take take care of me. Isn't going to do anything. So that trust is afforded, mm -hmm. and then it's in then that moment of isolation when the abuser exploits that trust and boundaries start being crossed. So they're blurred at first so that the opportunity can be seized to cross right. them. Right. Essentially. Yes. Yes. And, and that's part of the disillusionment that's felt, the confusion that's felt when those boundaries all of, all of a sudden cross because mm -hmm. you're, you're not sure what is happening and, and it's totally un, 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 unexpected. Mm -hmm. And and so those boundaries are starting to be crossed. And ingratiation all sets people up for that. Mm -hmm. So it's very seductive and charming. Can I give an example of this? Yeah. That's real practical. Um, this stuff isn't like fun to share. It's pretty embarrassing, but it, mm -hmm. I think it's helpful for the sake of the conversation. So I just met with um, some of the elders of the church that I was at and this convert, this gift giving piece came up and, um, they said, Hey, when you left, you gave the pastor of this church a bottle of bourbon. And I was like, 
totally. I, we moved to bourbon country and I, I knew he liked bourbon and he gave my husband and I significant coaching when we stepped in this church. I also gave the executive pastor bottles of champagne and the HR director liked Mountain Dew. And this was an actual like taught thing in the culture. Right. So I was told numerous occasions when I needed something announced from the platform, that's a sixth bottle of red ask. Wow. And I, there was coaching. I mean, specifically, I can remember Bill saying, I don't want this to be a place that people have to say yes. I want them to want to say yes to things. So this was a part mm-hmm. of the coaching. And I've read something in your work about how predators will instill that into the culture so that it can't be questioned almost like, so now you can't question my kindness because this is just me being benevolent and being generous. So I was telling the new elders about this. Like I, I fully take ownership for buying a bottle of bourbon for him. And I could probably tell you what my husband and I wrote in the card. And at the time, like maybe I need to go back and reflect on that at the time that was totally a part of the culture here. And it was not just something that you read the air and picked up. It was articulated. Like this was a trained part of the culture that I think led us into this situation to begin with. And so that, you know, one of the learnings for them was just that sense of reciprocity. That was an expectation Mm -hmm. that was built in and just that the charmer, you, you can't, you can't question somebody's generosity there. Right. Even if it's to an awkward level. Yes. Yes. And you're expected to mirror it. Totally. Yes. And then I was sort of blamed when I did, like, they were like, this is sort of suspect to us. And I was like, huh, well, this is the first time in all these conversations this has come up. And in my mind, there's a totally good explanation. And seeing how all this, like, I, certainly I've had to go back and question, huh, the, you know, what does that say about me or what my right. int- were my intentions right. or but it wasn't like in a vacuum, I was trying to be this seductive gift giver. Like this was an actual part of the culture that had been built over years and right. years and years yes. of time that I think elucidates what you're talking about. Yes, it does. Yeah, it does. And you're, and what you're describing are all different kinds of charms and ingratiating behaviors that all serve the same purpose. Mm-hmm. So the gift of a bottle of wine serves the same purpose as the gift of a compliment. Mm-hmm. So they are on the same plane. Mm-hmm. And the abusive person uses those mm-hmm. and expects that people are going to return them. And that's usually what happens. And that's when it becomes part of the culture. Mm-hmm. So the culture that is created, you know, you're... Uh, giving gifts in return is just a a symptom of the abusive person's behavior. And so if a person comes to you and says, this is another ingratiation tactic called exemplification, where the person mm. suggests that you are exemplary in some way. Better so than c- everybody else here, you stand out. Yes, that's mm. it right there. Mm-hmm. Right? Could, mm-hmm. You are exemplary. Okay. And, and that's powerful. Because mm-hmm. people hear that and say, well, you know, maybe that's true. Or even if it's not, I like that it's being said. But the expectation is to return that. So if the boss who says, you know, you are the, you're the hardest working employee we've ever had. Well, the employee might f- feel the need to say, you're the best boss I've ever had. Mm-hmm. Right? So it becomes a... Or a thank psych- them for the opportunity 
You right. know, you're, you, yeah, you lead thing. so well. Thank right. you for this yeah. Oh, chance. yeah. You get credit for the kingdom impact I've yeah. made because yeah. you invested right. in me. Exactly. I mean, that I've I Every compliment that. you give to me has to be returned by saying, well, it's because of you. No, thank yes. you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that that is pervasive in our evangelical culture, especially the celebrity portions of this mm. culture. Mm-hmm. These ingratiating behaviors are pervasive. Mm-hmm. And a cycle has been spinning for some time, mm-hmm. and it's spinning faster and faster, mm-hmm. where people are over the top, um, especially in conferences, you know, and intro- introducing speakers, they're almost deifying mm-hmm. the other person. Mm-hmm. And then that's returned. Well, if that's happening, then other ingratiating behaviors are also happening. We've read stories of those where I'm going to, I'm going to buy you this gift and hope that you return me this favor. Mm-hmm. I'm going to help you in this way. Maybe mm-hmm. it's not, you know, buy the book, but you know, there's it's so, gray. Yeah, it's gray, and you're yeah. going to help me in return. And so, don't run this story if I buy you this thing, or I'm going to bring you in to talk about your book, and then you're going to yeah, write about me. Right. And that, like, I, my husband and I refer to it as like the evangelical business complex. Yes. Like there is this sort of sense of. Um, extracurricular activities now that are just part of the deal as you build a platform. I I just heard a really popular pastor that probably has influenced all of our leadership at some point talking on a podcast about how to build a platform. And just internally, yeah. I'm like, wait a minute, where was that the call? Like, wait, why are, what do, who needs to build a platform right now? Right. But this has become the celebrity culture that we yeah. experience in the church. Yeah. And network too, like platform and network mm-hmm. are the two buzzwords for um, power. If you mm. want to have power, what's your network? What kind of platform do you have? Like those are the things that you have to begin developing to be successful in the mm-hmm. kingdom of God in America. And if you don't have a network, then you really don't. Like you're not good to me. You don't know mm. anybody. You can't do mm. anything here. And that's that's kind of dangerous. Yeah, and I, and I'm aware of the ways. I think w- the invitation for us is to be aware of the ways that we contribute to this. Like mm. yes. all of us within the church, yeah, build the platforms that these individuals stand on, and have to do the work to say what is it that we've done to contribute to this kind of toxicity. Yes, it's not on a good trajectory right now. Yes, right. Mm. Yes, so because we're still valuing it. Yes. Yeah. So we have to change our values. Yes. And so I think we change it by recognizing it in a person and saying, no, as a, you know, let's say it's a search committee that's looking for a pastor or um, somebody to occupy a role in a Christian organization. And so they identify these behaviors and they say, we no longer, we don't value that. Mm-hmm. And so that's not going to be important to us. Mm-hmm. So th- I think that's where it begins to begins to change. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's why I loved your, you know, the analogy of the, of the ripping up the sidewalk. I mean, it's as these pastors and organizations begin to be exposed, they're going to replace the people that did this. But if they don't rip this out and say, that's not, we can't do this anymore. We have to go all the way down. We're not changing. We're just saying, oh, I didn't know that about him. Yeah. We don't like that, but we're still going to play by his rules technically because totally. we're not going to 
undo anything that he built. If the system yeah. and the structure, if all of it is not held up to the light, it will just perpetuate the same thing that got, right. got them in. I, this precise conversation I had with a staff member at Willow right now who was saying, you know, I feel God has called me to stay here. And this was the first time we had spoken in a year and a half because he was told not to talk to me and was told some really terrible things about me. And so we had a really redemptive conversation. There were tears on both sides. I sat down with he and his wife and, you know, he said, I think everybody is sort of waiting like for them to come in and tell us who we are, what's next and who are we? Mm -hmm. And I said, I just don't think that God's going to work that way because right. that's going to perpetuate the exact precise same things that God your organization into this situation. Like if God has called you to stay here, then he's calling you to shape the future of this mm. organization, not the next king, if you will, that's going to come in and point we, to the direction. We, we that talk about this in. shaping the organization though. I mean, that's not biblical. <laughs> if we're questioning what the organization should be doing next, we already know that. Go find the broken in your community. Go love people. Don't build more systems. Don't get a new dynamic leader. Don't get don't spread it out over five dynamic leaders. Like actually just go love people in your community and mm. and see what's going to happen that way. Like Willow shouldn't be done. It should be able to say, "Hey, we were about the wrong things. Now if we become about the things actually God called us to, that he called all followers to do, mm -hmm. then it that it, it shouldn't be. Yeah, exactly. We're just we're trying to rebuild the system. But that's not what we're called to do. And that's when we're going to get in the same place. Mm -hmm. We're just going to keep spinning this circle where we keep building systems and systems. And then they keep crumbling. I think Diane said it's God's grace that keeps knocking them down. And then they're going to, we're going to keep trying to build them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So talk to us about the, this value system. Because we have to continue to say what's the most important. What's the thing that's going to drive whatever our next step is or how we move forward. Why do we continue to choose the wrong thing, Wade? Because <laughs> like, I think we want the, the wrong answer. things. Yeah. yeah. You know, so. Like answers. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. We just want answers. all the answers. Yes. <laughs> nice. Well, and, and, that's, and that's one of the realizations that you have to come to is that there is no blueprint. You know, mm -hmm. we all want a blueprint. There's mm -hmm. a third way. Yeah. Well, we, and I think that way is the way of wisdom. Mm-hmm. So I believe that's what's needed, is training and wisdom. Mm -hmm. Because in each of these organizations, they have shunned wisdom. Mm. And they can no longer see what is right and what is good. Because they've either gone the route of becoming arrogant and overconfident. They think they know what they need to know. Mm-hmm. And so wisdom can't exist in that. Mm -hmm. Or they go the route of becoming overcautious and fearful. Mm -hmm. They just want to ignore it all, hope it all goes away. And wisdom can't exist in that kind of environment either. Mm -hmm. And so both of those groups of people are, are shunning wisdom. And they're both narrow-minded. Mm. They're both unwilling to look around, mm -hmm. turn the lights on. And so I think what we need is a kind of a movement of, of wisdom where people are willing to have conversations like this. So in some of the research that I've done on crisis, uh, they've suggested that the best response in a crisis 
is for people to engage in what's what they call updating and doubting. So mm-hmm. updating is just another word for feedback and communication. So are we availing ourselves to all of the feedback that might come our way? Are we turning over every rock? Are we asking hard questions? And then that needs to be coupled with doubting, uh, doubting your own interpretation of what is what the church ought to be, um, doubting your own uh, current uh, values. It's saying maybe I maybe maybe we have gotten this wrong. Mm-hmm. So that creates then a window for feedback to enter in. So doubting and updating kind of are the ingredients of, of wisdom. Mm-hmm. But the person who's arrogant is going to shun that. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't need your input and they're not going to allow themselves to be doubted. Mm-hmm. And then the person who is overly cautious, and I think that's many people who say, well, if we start talking about this, then what will that mean? Is this going to cause everything to collapse? Yeah. Is, right. And so. And it will cause some things to collapse. Yes, right. Yeah. yeah. Yes, it'll be necessary yeah. for some things to be torn down so that other things can be built in its place. Mm-hmm. But uh, there are people who are overcautious and fearful, and so they don't allow themselves to ask hard questions or to doubt, and they don't open themselves up to feedback from other people or conversations. And so you have this this situation in which people are being pulled away from wisdom in, in a crisis often. Mm-hmm. And so what we need is for people to come together and, and embrace wisdom. And, and in that kind of environment, I believe God can work and we can receive the kind of wisdom that comes from above and that illuminates, and then we need the moral courage to to act on that mm. out of that place of wisdom. Mm-hmm. So that's not necessarily a hey, do this, sure. A, but it's a principle. Let's say it's it's bigger. It's, yeah, right. There isn't a just go do this kind of right. a thing because yes. every situation is different. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if we step back and just look at how many times we have seen the script of protection play out, like. Are we going to get it? Are we going to get that that does not work and come to the table in humility earlier on? Like to see how formulaic it is from reading your work, how often people make the same decisions, make the same mistakes, make the same, uh, follow the same path of image management tactics. Like Mm -hmm. are there organizations that have handled it differently? Wade, can you give us even a sense of hope for organizations that have been willing to take the public risk to say, wow, we have a lot to learn here or haven't gone the sort of PR impression management route? Yes, there are. I, th- I, I want to believe that there are many. Mm-hmm. I think we often don't hear of those churches, sure. you know, because the... That's not newsworthy. Yeah, it's not newsworthy. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Right. A group of people who just worked out their differences. Yeah, right, we don't right. want to hear about yes, that. Exactly. <laughs> or no who acknowledged right. they didn't know how to handle a really yeah. complex situation. And yeah, so yes. they got the right people involved. Mm-hmm. It's true. There, there's not a lot of news covering the redemptive side of any of this. So let's yes. give it some airtime on... Yeah. As you know, so there are uh, churches who have decided to uh, go public with some of their own failings, knowing even that that would open themselves up to lawsuit. And so I know of wow. churches who have said, you know what, we're going to 
we're going to take on that risk and we're not going to be afraid of being bankrupt. Um, this is what God is calling us to do. This is what we need to do. And so, yeah, there are people mm -hmm. uh, leading churches who are making those courageous, right decisions. Mm -hmm. So they are there. Um, and I think those are the people who are worth hearing from mm -hmm. um, and talking to. And mm -hmm. there are those who have resisted. There are many that we don't know about who have resisted the organizations that they were in or are in and um, have come out of that and are now leading churches mm -hmm. and are saying we're going to be different and they're being shaped by a new set of values. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the other thing that is happening that perhaps we don't see is that there's a lot of exposure happening right now. Um, but that exposure is because of courageous people like yourself who are coming out and saying, this is what's true. This is what happened. And I'm going to say something about it for the sake of the church and for the sake of other people. Well, those people are often going on to lead in other settings and they are leading out of a place of brokenness and they are leading out of an experience of walking with Jesus through a very difficult period of time mm. in their life and they've learned uh, that what it means to walk by faith and to have every crutch removed and and to simply submit themselves to God's leading they've they've lost everything mm -hmm. that perhaps the person who uh, wants to build their own kingdom values they've lost all of their money their home their their relationship their reputations mm -hmm. and yet they're and yet they found a life in Christ in the midst of that. And they're in a position of leading. And so they're leading out of that brokenness. They're leading out of that experience. And they're, they are reshaping people's views of God, people's mm. views of, of what's important. And so I think there's a lot of that happening as well. Mm -hmm. So I think in, the more we see exposure happen, the exposure often is happening because of people who are willing to do the hard thing and the right thing of shining a light on an abusive situation or on dark secrets, the, when the, those people um, go out to either lead in that situation or lead in other situations, I think that we're going to see sort of a rising up of those mm. individuals. Mm -hmm. That's very hope-filled because, yeah. I, I mean, in a sense, the way that I've talked about it is like the faith that I entered into this season with is no longer the faith that I carry now. And yeah, what I hold yeah. on to now is much more durable. Mm, it's right. much more raw. Um, but I hope it's much more dependent on Christ yeah. and not me and any of the gifts or strengths I can bring to this. Mm. And that gets me excited to think yes. about leading from a place of that authenticity. Yeah. You've experienced loss. Yeah. And an unjust loss. loss. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And and here you are, still speaking, still leading, still trying to shine a light. And so you've overcome that loss in a sense, and you've learned from it. Most days. Not, yeah, right. Not no, days. not completely. We never did. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. But, yeah. you know, and you, you've survived that, you know. Yeah. So there are survivors who are, who have their agency restored. Mm-hmm. Mm. And, and that is a very hopeful thing mm -hmm. because these are people who are now 
leading and speaking and acting who have experienced loss and they're 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 not in this place of needing to possess mm. something that other people have or yeah. maintain something that yeah yeah isn't necessary right yeah because yeah. they've gone th- what that what often the abusive person in power fears is the things that you've gone through <laughs> the loss mm. of reputation yeah. mm-hmm. the loss of position the loss of power and you're no longer governed by that fear mm-hmm. not that you ever were but in some ways i think the person who goes through that loss and experiences life in christ through that Mm-hmm. is reminded again and it reinforces for them this is what matters and so we're shaped through that and so we come out of that mm-hmm. and we realize you know this these things that other people are so concerned about money and yeah. notoriety and fame and influence mm-hmm. they're not as important yeah dallas willard dallas willard talks about in, in his book the life without lack as you were describing this what you both have gone through and we we don't hear about a ton of these leaders. We probably hear from them. We just don't realize that they've gone through situations like that. But he was describing the life of Job through the three phases of faith that you walk through. Mm-hmm. And it sounds exactly like what mm. you guys are doing. But his his point was you have to go through number two, which is losing everything. But it's in that moment that you choose to say, even though it's all gone, that's when I'm leaning on God. Because the first transactional faith that we experience at the beginning, you know, God, I'm giving you my systems. I'm giving you all this stuff. And you're going to, if I do X, Y, and Z, you're going to bring the people into my church. And, you know, I'm going to stick it out and do all this stuff. But when you have to lose it all to actually say, ah, this isn't, this isn't what God had in mind. And I'm going to choose to go into the unknown, the scariness of losing everything to find him. That's when you actually find, I don't know if I had him at the beginning in what I was doing. Now mm-hmm. I know I have them in what I'm doing mm-hmm. moving forward. I wish we could hear more of those stories, like what you guys have the been sharing. The ones that fortify yeah. you. And at the end of the day, if I am no longer useful for the purposes of God in the church, like that's not about me. Well, I, like think, that, that I think that's impossible, of... honestly. When you get to that point, I think you might, because you've said that a few times to me even today, And as I think through that, I think you might be useless in the sense of the church as it looks right now, or, you know, the incorrect version of that. Sure. I don't fit in the systems because what you've discovered is something actually much more real to what God had in mind. Sure. And the real kingdom work that you're going to still be able to do, you don't need the systems to do that. Sure. So still being useful, probably more useful in the eyes of God in that way, I think. Um, it's just a different perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's scarier, though, when you're on the first the first half of that. Because totally. your whole life and career and future is built on those systems. They need to work, because if they don't work, you can't get the raise, you can't support your family. Well, sure, on the church side, and even on the faith side, I mean, the level of disruption that comes with dealing in the reality of what we're capable of and sort of the condition of human depravity and you know like that that stuff wrestling with that stuff and I I think many of the people at least associated with the church that I was a a part of experiencing this stuff are stuck in that place right now Mm -hmm. and so I have some a great deal of empathy for that because 
I was there a year and a half ago when I sat in that counselor's office two years ago, and he said predatory grooming behavior. So I had to leave and deal with what does that actually mean and Mm -hmm. wrestle with God on how is it possible that you could use an individual for such Mm. tremendous good in this Mm -hmm. world and they can be capable of such darkness, like the sovereignty of God in that and the... Um, the dichotomy of that, that I think our brains don't want to be able to hold space that both of those things could be Mm. true. The easier story to tell myself is, well, if he lied about all of this, everything he ever said was a lie, but that's not true. Mm -hmm. Bill's one of the people that affirmed my, my capacity for leadership, affirmed my writing, like things that I want to be like, I'm never going to write again, you know? And there are people right now at Willow that are like, don't ever say his name again. And don't ever say Mm -hmm. this phrase. And, and I think our capacity to hold the the reality that things can be really beautiful and really dark and broken at the same time like that that is something that god had to expand my capacity and like there i came very close to some very severe destruction in that phase of like what does it all matter anyways if this is who people really are in the dark and this is who they project to be in the light what does it matter like it is God even real in some of those moments of wrestling? Because what kind of God could allow this sort of dual reality to exist and could choose to anoint and use an individual who's capable of this type of destructive, you know, tearing apart the dignity of humans and publicly still do such. I mean, and I think so many people, because of the impression management stuff that they've seen now, it's not just that leader, it's, it's layers of leaders, it's elders that held that leader accountable. It's senior leaders around that leader that chose to protect this behavior and candidly knew a lot more about it behind closed doors. As I watched these Chicago Tribune stories come out with details that were eerily similar to the things that I had reported to them, the things that were in quotes investigated, you know, just all the layers of that, that I go, how do we help people put the pieces together after they've experienced that kind of impression management to be able to move forward and ideally still walk away with some faith in God on the other side of that? How do we do that, Wade? Helping them to differentiate between what is abuse and what isn't, you know, what proper use looks like. Um, And so it's, and also perhaps being able to understand that there are abusive behaviors that somebody might develop over time. Mm Mm-hmm. And they might be on a path toward destruction. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that person uh, was always on that path. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's, it is just, it goes back again to the need to s- see truthfully. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when we, when we experience something that causes within us a, a, reasonable anger, frustration, um, we can allow that to distort our thinking, mm-hmm. you know, so bias and en- enters in. Mm-hmm. And so again, it goes back to, okay, here's an explanation, here's a narrative that perhaps would be easier to believe. Mm-hmm. And so we might unfairly demonize somebody 
mm-hmm. or an entire group of people mm-hmm. or an entire church or an entire denomination. Mm-hmm. And that can serve our own desires, you know, that might justify for a moment. Uh, yeah, for mo- right, yeah. right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, there are a lot of people, I don't know if you follow like the ex-evangelical hashtag on yeah. Twitter, but mm-hmm. there are a lot of people that have taken that route because mm-hmm. they have been hurt in, in some of them severe ways in the church. And mm-hmm. so that becomes the response is to demonize or to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, that's the way we talk about that. Mm -hmm. Like it's all bad. And I just find that very little in life is all one thing. Like Mm -hmm. there's so much nuance to it. So how do we wade through, especially when more layers of deception have been heaped on organizationally? How do you wade through that to find what is true? And how do you reconcile the parts that are not? I mean, I, I think almost to an unhealthy degree, I have dug in to try to understand. And that's part of what led me to your work. And um, I, I continue to really naively put myself in a position with, with new leaders. And I think I've gone now like nine or 10 times to tell my story. I went as this was unfolding publicly like 15 times last year to try to get these leaders to meet with me and to try to come to the table. And at one point they were like, Hey, you know, put together all the holes in the investigation that we did and come back. I'm like, well, here's one. Nobody was ever contacted that could have verified anything that I was telling you was Mm -hmm. true. Or, um, you know, why is it this investigator's job to determine nothing was that was said to me about my body, the shape of my body, my skin tone, and my clothes was inappropriate? Like, who gives that person license? Or because the model number of the boat that we were on didn't match the picture of the boat that he asked me to send. You know, like that. Why right. is nobody concerned about these grave gaps? Or I was told this was independent and objective. And I didn't know at the time that that meant I would be privy to all of the results of it, that you would assume that to be true. So Mm -hmm. again, there's these, you know, layers of deception and the easy thing would be to just determine it was all malicious and calculated and intentional and they're all just terrible, awful people. So I'm going to walk away with no responsibility or no understanding, but very rarely in life is that true. Mm-hmm. So to come to the table and seek understanding over and over again, you know, help me understand what were you being told or help me understand. And uh, I shared this with you, one of the previous elders said, we entered into the decisions of what to represent publicly with the wrong set of values. And he said, our highest value was to protect the $200 million in assets not to protect the people. Mm -hmm. And my reflection back to him was, well, that's when you failed to be the church. That's when you started functioning as a business or an organization, but that was not, if, if a church is to reflect the character and the nature of who God is, then that's where, and maybe it was way before that in their decision-making, but that's where you failed to respond as the church. Yes. You chose to serve God rather than money. I mean, you chose to serve money rather than God. Yes. Right. So I think you're right that we need to be able to see truthfully. And so people who are even um, been hurt or advocating or trying to shine a light also need to walk with wisdom and walk carefully. And what that means is that um, you have to recognize that there might be a lot that you don't know. Mm -hmm. And so what that means is, and this is typically what it means, is that things are worse then they appear, mm. you know, once you actually get behind the curtain, you might discover that things are actually much worse mm. um, than I thought. I knew, I thought things were bad, but now mm-hmm. that I'm seeing everything, I'm 
realizing how bad they really are. Early on, that was my experience because they responded so poorly that I Mm -hmm. kept thinking, what, wait, why are they, wait, they're better than this is not, this is an appropriate way to respond. And now it's been illuminated for me how much there was to sort of protect or cover up or, or keep concealed that I had no clue about at the time. Mm -hmm. So that's what you're talking about. It's just the, the layers are, tend to be more prevalent than we imagine or anticipate. Yes. And being open to that. So I think being open to the, to the reality that things might be worse um, than you've been led to believe. But that also means on the other side, being open to the reality that things might be better than you think. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that's just what wisdom requires Mm -hmm. is that kind of openness but you have to act with the information that you have mm-hmm. and but knowing that you might come across new information and being open to that mm-hmm. otherwise you're making in some ways some of the same mistakes where you're shutting yourself off to certain information that might disrupt your definition mm-hmm. to feedback or to what was the other one uh, oh uh, feedback or doubt or doubt right yes. right yes right so how do we make sense of the image image management tactics? How do you see how do you even function now if I if ignorance really is bliss and now you have this new lens to see these things? I mean, how do we make sense of that? How do you believe the best? How do you weed out what is false? Yeah, I think I think it was Kierkegaard who said something along the lines of uh, needing to be subjective toward other people and objective toward ourselves. Mm. So hopefully I, I know myself and so I can recognize impression management behaviors in myself mm. when I see them. And I know, or at least I hope I know what is behind that. So if I feel the need to say a certain thing in a meeting in order to protect myself um, or in order to shape someone's impression of me, then hopefully I'm aware of the reason behind that um, and can make an objective conclusion about where that's coming from. But if I see it in another person, then I am only seeing the behaviors, and those behaviors might be indicative of a motive hmm. or a heart condition, but I have to understand that my conclusion, my interpretation of that person is subjective. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's a helpful kind of framework to keep in mind. Yeah. Now, you, you can't use that as a, as a justification for not addressing certain behaviors that you know perhaps are crossing. So if in a church situation, if you see a, someone who is uh, engaging in what you know to be grooming behavior, you can't just say, well, you know, you know, I, I, I can't make any conclusions about that person. Well, you don't have to. You can simply say these are the behaviors that you're engaging in and that they're, that they're not appropriate and they're crossing these boundaries that we've set up mm-hmm. for the protection of people here and children here or to report that to somebody. And so, but, you're, but you can do that without making a conclusion about that person. person. Yes. Mm. So when I see impression management tactics being used by another person, I see that as evidence. And it's just another source of data. It's, mm-hmm. they, they are indicators. 
And so what you want to do is collect all of the evidence that might be out there. It might not just be impression management tactics, but it could be uh, individuals who have been harmed by that person who are sharing their story. And so you begin to put together a pattern. Mm-hmm. And so then you make a judgment based on what hopefully is as as much of a complete pattern as you can possibly put out there. Mm-hmm. Multiple data points, yes, multiple right, perspectives. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anything that you could give us in terms of like a pathway for an organization, church leaders, allegations come, there's a need for a public addressing of that. How, mm-hmm. how do you humbly do that in a way that's not managing impressions that creates a level of safety that people could continue to attend mm-hmm. or contribute in a way that's going to be helpful in solving something? You know, what, what would that look like to do in a healthy way? I think, I think there are steps uh, that a church group of people can follow. Um, sometimes the most important step is for a group of leaders who know that they have really failed mm-hmm. to simply say, our next decision is going to be to not make any more decisions. And so to resign. And mm-hmm. so I think that's often the right, honorable best thing for the organization uh, to allow other people to step into that role and to lead. Mm -hmm. So that's one option, um, depending on the situation. But whoever's in that place of leading the organization forward, I think they need to, they need to first um, surrender themselves to outside expert advice and counsel, someone who can help them make sense of what happened, what is happening, and their role in that. Mm -hmm. And so there is this surrender that I feel needs to happen. They also need to surrender their desires to protect themselves or to engage in impression management to deceive. Mm -hmm. So if they can identify in themselves, you know, here we... We have this tendency to to put up all of these walls to fortress this truth or to protect our money, you know, so to be willing to surrender that. And so I think that's one of the hardest steps, um, mm. but they need to go through that process of surrender. And that would require an organization to say, irrespective of the cost, yes, we're going to put it all out there. Yep. They... If their highest value is truth, then they need to come to a point of saying, we're going to speak truth, we're not going to hide the truth, even if it means the end of our organization. Mm -hmm. They have to be willing to to say that. Mm -hmm. And so that's a difficult step of surrender. And, And that's a step of faith as well. And then I think another step is to confess. So out of that surrender should come an awareness of your own wrongs as individuals leading the organization or as the organization. An outside person perhaps can come in and help you see that, um, but other people um, who have been harmed by your behavior 
can help you see that. So you're just submitting yourself, you're surrendering yourself, making yourself open to that. Mm -hmm. And out of that, I believe, should come some kind of confession. Mm -hmm. So we acknowledge these specific wrongs. Mm -hmm. And I think that the organization ought to also confess things that perhaps haven't been exposed, but they know to be true. Mm -hmm. And so I believe one indicator of an organization that is truly walking with integrity is that when the moment of confession comes, they're not just confessing the minimum amount to quell the scandal, Mm. but they're confessing all that they believe God would have them confess. Mm -hmm. So, and that's what they should have been doing all along that they haven't been doing. So that act of confession, um, I think they need to be willing to, when they do that, take full ownership not putting it on other people, mm-hmm. um, not even saying necessarily, well, we weren't here then, or, but they're going to take full responsibility and ownership. And that's for the impact too, not just what their intent was. I mean, that, that has been a theme that I've experienced over and over again is this was our intention or this was because of something else or, and not the actual impact of what has happened. That's what taking full responsibility yes. is, is the impact, not just the intent. Yes, yeah, so that's another tactic is denying intent, but it's trying to escape um, ownership. It's trying to escape responsibility. To abdicate it that. and pass yeah, it off to, ab- to somebody yeah, else. Yeah, right, right. But it's important under for them to own the impact, yeah, to or to say this is this is whether or not our intent was wrong or good, mm-hmm. this is what our behavior communicated. This is what our behavior caused, mm-hmm. and there's no excuse for mm-hmm. that. And so that's what it means to take full ownership mm-hmm. of that. And and I think then they need to. Now that is where you know issues of liability might come up. You know, so they might, but but they'll be willing to do that if they've gone through the hard work of surrender. Yeah. So they're they're going to surrender, confess, take ownership. Um, I think they also, in this process, need to be willing to recognize um, all of the individuals that have been harmed, um, and whatever that might look like, uh, recognize uh, all of the factors that have contributed to that harm. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a step of not just confession and not just ownership, but also being willing to say, this is what this did to to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is what this did to this organization, and and we would just want to recognize that. And then I think the last the last step, perhaps, then is to express some kind of empathy, not for the sake of managing people's impressions, so they see you as. Mm-hmm. sincere. Mm-hmm. But I think if you go through that process in a genuine, authentic, slow way, then it should produce within you a genuine empathy. So often we start with with the words, you know, I'm sorry, and they're given this kind of magical quality that if I just say this, it's going to make everything go away, and that's what people need to hear. But I think those words, those expressions of sorrow should come at the end. 
so that the person who is surrendering surrendering themselves and is actually taking the time to confess every specific wrong. Mm -hmm. So a church like Willow that held family meetings in which there was a lot of deception, Mm -hmm. they ought to confess every single specific lie. Whether it came from Bill's mouth or somebody else's mouth, Mm -hmm. they they ought to take ownership of that and confess Mm -hmm. every single specific one, Mm -hmm. even if it takes them hours to do. Mm -hmm. I think that's the right thing to do. And if they do that, then they are taking on all of that, all of that shame Mm -hmm. that a lot of other people have been carrying or been asked to carry. Mm -hmm. And they're giving up their, their legitimacy that they have claimed that they have claimed for themselves Mm -hmm. that they're trying to retain. Mm -hmm. And they're saying, no, these individuals who were bringing their concerns who are telling their stories to us, who are asking us to act, they were legitimate all along. Mm-hmm. And we tried to retain that for ourselves. And we asked them to bear the shame. That we should have. That we should have, yes. Mm-hmm. We should have been ashamed of this. Mm-hmm. That this was happening under our watch. Mm-hmm. And this is not with like a theoretical piece of language that you have discovered like this is the actual weight of for a year and a half carrying shame Mm -hmm. about things I was accused of and shame that somebody else should have felt because of things that they did or covered up or participated in and the legitimacy of what I was bringing them transferred where they tried to steal legitimacy and project a a narrative and a timeline Mm -hmm. and information just subtly manipulated in multiple ways such that at a minimum it created confusion if not you know total disbelief but that transfer and and finding the language for that of they transferred my legitimacy for their shame and Mm -hmm. gave me their shame and took my legitimacy like that is a real actual transfer that i can imagine happens to far greater degrees with people with far heavier stories than what my own was and the freedom and agency that that gave me to, mm-hmm. to find that voca- vocabulary, to even be able right. to articulate that. And I shared this with the, the new elder board. This is what my experience was summed mm-hmm. up mm-hmm. of how you responded. Yes. Yes. So it's a description of something you actually experienced. Totally. Yes. And so they need to recognize that. And so this might be helpful, you know, if you go through something that produces a lot of suffering in your life, uh, sometimes it's helpful to write all of that out. I was hurt when I was, I mean, I did this once and it was, it, I stayed up all night just writing out mm-hmm. um, one after another, um, every action that the church took and certain individuals in my life took that produced hurt and anger and I didn't realize until I got to the end how much there was. Mm-hmm. And you know that. Mm-hmm. Others know that. Mm-hmm. But the organization needs to know that. Mm-hmm. And you know, in a sense, they need to be able to mirror that and say, we hurt you when. Mm-hmm. We caused suffering in your life when. We said this, when we did this, when we 
failed to respond, when we ignored you, when we didn't respond to your email, when when we misrepresented you, mm-hmm. they need to be willing to speak that mm-hmm. in every single one. Mm-hmm. And in, because every single one carries some shame. Mm-hmm. Every single one communicated something, mm-hmm. did something. And so what they're doing is they're confessing that. They're, they're bringing it out into the light. And they're saying, no, we are owning this. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's a difficult thing to do. But I believe it's very powerful because the person who hears that and receives that um, it, it does have this sense of lifting. It has a dual effect of lifting off of their shoulders some things that they've been carrying. Even the realization that I no longer have to be the one to shout this. I no longer have Into to the be the... void of whatever. Yes, <laughs> right. Emptiness, the dark room yes, that it right. just bounces off the walls. Yes, in. because, you know, there's multiple people who know this, you know, that I experienced this. There's yeah. obviously, I, you know it, what you experienced, but also the people who inflicted the harm know it Mm -hmm. so that needs to get out there and so when that person says what is true what Mm -hmm. you know to be true then they are saying in a sense no this is our secret and we've been asking you to keep our secrets Mm -hmm. or you have felt like you need to keep our secrets we're not going to ask you to do that anymore we're going to bring this into the light Mm -hmm. and one of the things that i grieve about is that so many survivors of abuse are I applaud their 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 courage, but they are the ones who are exposing mm. this. Yeah. And it, it should be the people who were there to protect them. It should be the perpetrator. It's unlikely to happen, but it mm-hmm. they should be the ones who are shining a light on this. Mm-hmm. And so there's an opportunity for an organization like Will I think that opportunity and I think that opportunity always exists until it happens. That Mm -hmm. opportunity is always there. Mm -hmm. And so they have an opportunity to say, here's what we did. And here's specifically what it is. Mm -hmm. And we're going to confess that. We're going to take full ownership. And we're going to recognize the harm that it caused. Mm -hmm. And I think that can be a very powerful healing moment. And if they go through it in that way, and this is what I was speaking about earlier, then I believe God works in that and produces within the person who's sincerely walking down that per, uh, down that path a genuine empathy mm-hmm. so that what mm-hmm. pours out of that person is mourning or tears mm-hmm. is the cry of I am so 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 sorry and I can't say that enough and that's what I believe people who have been hurt need to need to hear mm-hmm. and then beyond that you know there's actual change and there's a willingness to go through and there there's restitution and but i think it i think it starts with with this surrender and confession and taking ownership and mm-hmm. recognizing the harm done and and then out of that saying we are we are so full of sorrow mm-hmm part of what you're describing feels like um, the mantle of responsibility that I never wanted to carry, but that I felt as soon as my eyes were open, Mm -hmm. as soon as I saw clearly what these patterns were, I had a very clear moment of decision where 
I lived in another state. I was I was on staff part time with Willow. I was there once a month. I had no longer reported to Bill. That was a part. I mean, I left because of the continued inappropriate behavior. Mm-hmm. And the easy thing would have been for me to quit and turn the page and never really think about any of that again. Like right. that and as somebody who does not like vulnerability, like that would have been the much easier path. And I just had this gnawing sense over and over again that if I don't say something and this happens to somebody else, which if Bill's going to retire and now mentor and coach pastors more full time, he's going to have even more access. I am now complicit in their abuse happening. That was, that was the sense that I felt. And so all I wanted to do was pass that mantle of responsibility to the people that it belonged to. Mm-hmm. And I thought that simply meant like saying, here's the information. Now you're responsible. And they even asked me numerous times, HR director, what is it that you would like to see happen? And I was like, I'm really not sure. But the good news for me is that's not for me to determine. Right. That's really yes. you. That's for you and, and the yeah. elders. That's their job to determine this. And so when they failed to take that responsibility, then I felt like I still carried it. And even mm-hmm. on to the elders and then even on to, you know, when I, when I hired a lawyer and filed a claim with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, all of that was because I want us to get to a place of truth. And when I talked to a lawyer and he said, you have a claim, what is it that you want? The very same thing of, I want to make sure this doesn't happen to anybody else was precisely what I said to him, which was the whole reason that I went to forward yeah, to begin right. with. But until they choose to receive that mantle of responsibility, in some ways it feels like I still carry it, yes. which I, I mean, I never signed up for that. That wasn't, you know, that wasn't the initial intention, mm-hmm. but until they're willing to say, we want, we are going to recognize this and we want to take this responsibility and we're so sorry for what this is. That's what I feel like I hear you describing is them taking responsibility and it's responsibility that isn't mine to carry, but that somehow I've ended up with the burden of all of this time. Yeah. They're, they're taking on a burden that should, should have always been on their shoulders. Sure. It's a Christian burden to be concerned about other people mm-hmm. and to see a threat to mm-hmm. their well-being mm-hmm. and to want to do something about that. Mm-hmm. And so um, the Christian leader ought to bear that burden. Mm-hmm. So you expect that someone in that position will quickly then transfer that from you, take it and say, you know, that's our responsibility. That Thank you. Yes, right. Yes. Yes. yes, we will do something about it. But when they don't do that... Um, you as a Christian who's concerned about other people are going to continue to be burdened by that. Mm -hmm. And so integrity means asking the question, what do I do with this? Mm -hmm. Is there someone else I can tell? How do I advocate for people Mm -hmm. that I'm burdened for? Mm -hmm. And, and I've been amazed that every, every survivor, yeah, I mean, I have to, every time I use the word every, I do a check to see if that's Is really that true. Yeah, yeah, right. Because yes. I want to be accurate. I yes. don't want to exaggerate, yes. you know. Yeah, it's good impression management yeah, protocol. Yeah, right. I don't sure. want to yeah. manage pressure, you know. But every survivor that I have had the opportunity to speak with have described their concern for other people and have said, you know, I acted. I said something. I spoke up because there's other people who might be harmed by this person mm-hmm. or they've come to say, I believe that I should say something because I'm concerned about others. Mm-hmm. And the, the people who are being threatened by that uh, concern that that person is bringing mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. are the ones who ought to be concerned for other people. Mm. But what they do, and this is what I feel is so wrong, is so often they will say about you, and, and this was said about you, that they're not being motivated by love for others, but they're actually being motivated by, by revenge or love for money. They're being paid to do this. Mm-hmm. And so it's the complete opposite of what is true. But they're going to claim that love mm-hmm. for themselves. Mm-hmm. And and so I think they they need to come to a point of saying, of recognizing that that is a that is a very wrong um, act of deception. Mm-hmm. I'm curious um, what our I mean I think we have roles as Christ followers in this. I I think that I'm convinced that there is really no one other than the Holy Spirit that can do that relevatory work. And I don't love that because I want to believe that we have influence and impact and that we can, you know, show up to the table enough times that people are going to finally hear or listen or, and in August of 2018, Willow had to respond to my EEOC claim. So this Mm -hmm. is after the board resigned. This is after Bill had retired early. This is um, after the New York Times article came out and their response to the EEOC was still defensive of Bill's behavior and normalizing uh-huh. it and taking, uh, trying to find ways to justify it or say, oh, that wasn't about sex or gender because he did this with men or, um, I mean, normalizing all of it. And, and I, the EEOC sent that to me. So when I read that in August, I was like, I, it is no longer my, my job to try to get these people to see what they refuse to see. And mm-hmm. if they're going to continue to take a posture of protection, even still, like that's beyond my, any sense of truth telling that I'm ever capable of doing to right, get them right. to, to choose to no longer be blind and be deaf in this. And, you know, we've engaged in a lot of conversations since then and, and they've acknowledged that was still a position of protection. I, I had a former elder come visit me in January and say, because of your claim, our lawyer had to respond to that claim and found actual evidence that Bill had destroyed his hard drive so that Mm -hmm. no other evidence could be found. Had Mm -hmm. IT destroy it with a hammer, like actual evidence that was the smoking gun that we would have needed to take disciplinary action with him. And my first response was, how do you feel about your independent objective investigation now? Like, do you still stand behind any sense of work that you did to ever try to credit me? If it took your lawyer finding that as you paid, that was the third attorney to try to defend your organization against me when all I was trying to do was come and share truth with you. Is there anything that we in our own humanity are capable of doing to expedite that process? Like, was there a, is there a humility? Is there a tenderness? Is there a, do you go find other leaders that have influence with you? Like, is there anything that we can do to expedite that process of people being willing to hear or listen to or see or understand truth? Or is that really their own internal decision and the Holy Spirit's work? Yeah, I I do think it's the Holy Spirit's work, but the Holy Spirit often works through us. um, And so we open ourselves up to that possibility. And at the same time, understanding that the Holy Spirit can accomplish what he wants to accomplish even without us. And so the burden, I think, for other people I mean, should, should always exist, 
but we take our burdens to Christ and recognize that he's burdened as well and mm-hmm. you know we can rest in that and so I can I can be burdened and at the same time be in a place of rest and not feel like I need to rush headlong into into something mm-hmm. or even recognize that there might be coming to point in time in which the only person left to appeal to is God himself mm-hmm. and to trust God with the outcome mm-hmm. and so sometimes we reach that point it's a sad place to be in but I've made every appeal that I can mm-hmm. to every authority out there mm-hmm. and perhaps even made an appeal to the public mm-hmm. and there's now nothing left for me to do and so I'm going to continue to appeal to God mm-hmm. and perhaps I'll be surprised at what emerges um, that I didn't see perhaps God's working in another area that I am completely unaware of sure and at some point all of this is gonna bundle together um, in in ways that I couldn't orchestrate, you know. So so that's part of the walking walking by faith. Mm-hmm. But I do think that we we need to think through what our role is. Um, so James says this, if if we don't do the good that we know we ought to do, then that is sin. So there might be an opportunity to do good, mm-hmm. um, and we have to recognize that perhaps. God is calling us to do that good. Maybe mm-hmm. there's a meeting that we can have with somebody or there's a letter we can write or something that God has laid upon our heart to do. Mm-hmm. And so God can God can use that, that action. Mm-hmm. So I think now how you go about doing that, mm-hmm. um, I think you, you meet deception with truth. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a lot of like strategies that I've come up with for actually advocating in those places i think like one for example is what i call the uh, principle of opposite action mm-hmm. so if i really believe that i'm up against a manipulative deceptive uh, group of people or individual then what that tells me is that the person is attempting to manage my impressions of of the institution mm-hmm. and so in order to in- control my behavior so it's so my strategy isn't so much to do the opposite of what that person is doing, but to do the opposite of what that person wants me to do. Mm-hmm. So I identify what is it that this person wants from me. Mm-hmm. This person wants my help, or this person wants my praise, or this person wants me not to resign, or this person wants me to resign. Okay, so there's a reason for that. Why is that? Mm-hmm. Okay, so if I'm going to frustrate this person's agenda, then the best way to do that is to do the opposite of what he or she wants me to do. Mm-hmm. So that's, I call that the principle of opposite action. Now that takes some risk and, you know, you have to be very uh, cautious and careful and wisdom is required. Yeah. But I think it's a, it's a important question to, to ask. And because sometimes that's what you need to do is mm-hmm. to really oppose. Um, and so I call that the principle of opposite action. And then, Another strategy that that I've developed over time is attempting to slow everything down, especially when you're in conversations with someone who is highly defensive or deceptive. What they rely on is the ability to kind of act as that jello on the wall. Yeah, right. They're constantly shifting. And and I also use the you know metaphor of the three different states of matter so you have vapor and you have water and you have solids and so truth is always a solid 
-hmm. But the deceptive person is kind of melting that truth down until it becomes a liquid. and So they can distort it. And if possible, they'll turn it into a vapor so that it's just absorbed into the air and perhaps even even isn't even recognizable. Hmm. Uh, because their goal is to keep people from detecting what is true. Hmm. And and so all of that happens, I think, with greater speed in, in when you're in a room with someone mm-hmm. who's highly deceptive. So you have the experience of of asking someone, can you give an account for this? And so they give their explanation, and you might feel like, whoa, whoa. Okay, I, I don't even know where to start with that, but there are so many things wrong with what you just said. Mm-hmm. So we, I think a lot of us have been in that place where we felt that in, in, in about another person. Mm-hmm. Now that person is, will get very frustrated if you stop and say, Paul, like, can we talk about this? And then can we also talk about this? And can we, they're going to want to keep moving forward mm-hmm. and they might even uh, attack you for getting into the details or being, you know, or making mm. too much of something. Getting and, into the details. Yeah. Yeah. But it's slowing down. Mm-hmm. Because once you can slow down and then you can identify areas of distortion, Mm -hmm. um, details that don't add up, Mm -hmm. and then you focus on those details. Mm -hmm. And that's where exposure often happens because it's very difficult for someone who is a deceiver, is a narcissistic, is an abuser to maintain a complex false narrative. Mm -hmm. And that's often what they have to do. Once they get to a certain point where there's multiple people that they've harmed, they've created a narrative that is that is entirely false, but it's become so complicated and it's very difficult for that person to maintain that. Mm -hmm. It's much easier to just recount what we know to be true, Mm -hmm. but to have to maintain a cohesive narrative that you know to be false is very difficult. Mm -hmm. And the the gaps in their narrative are found in the details. So if for now, I want to give an example, but I I don't want to um, reveal anything about the person, but this recently happened where there was somebody that, uh, you know, we were meeting with and certain things didn't add up. And so we started asking questions about the person's background. Mm Mm-hmm. And it was clear that uh, he didn't want us to go there. And at one point we decided, we had other things that we needed to talk about. And we decided, and we said this to him, we're, we're just going to stay on this for the rest of our time together because certain things aren't adding up. And so we, and he was very uncomfortable. But it was, it was, a, it was a result of entering into that one specific detail in mm-hmm. his narrative exposed that everything that he was presenting to us was based on a lie. Hmm. But the entrance into that was through this one specific detail. Mm -hmm. And at one point, you know, he was growing increasingly frustrated and pounding his hand on the table. And so he was being exposed in the course of that. He wasn't able to maintain his own composure Mm -hmm. because of the, because of what was happening. And so that's another strategy is to, when you're in a room and you're trying to uh, detect deception and identify truth, it's to try to slow everything down. Anytime something doesn't add up, people in the room need to be able to say, can we pause? Mm -hmm. Can we talk about that? Mm -hmm. And 
that often is where the exposure happens.